War, politics and lunacy. Sadly, that seems to be the In Moscow shadow trifecta these days. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company, Conductor. Well, I'm recording this on Friday the 29th of December, and I'm afraid... No magic mushrooms this time, no 19th century nukes. Instead, I thought for the last podcast of the year, just to basically pick up on some of the more recent news stories. And essentially that means the elections, that means the war, and then I also wanted just to sort of dig into a particularly extreme, to the point of bizarre, interview with a sort of a senior hawkish academic, Sergei Karaganov, which I'll do at the end. So let's start with the forthcoming presidential elections, which are, of course, nail-biters already. Well, of course not. But what we can now see is pretty much the shape of the field, because the the process of nominations has already sort of gone through the, the initial winnowing stage. And two of the figures who have been excluded, and it's definitely excluded by the, the system, the Central Election Commission, as ever, acting as the political hatchet man of the Kremlin, are Yekaterina Duntsova and Igor Girkin. So let me just briefly dwell on them. Duntsova was, sorry, is rather, (laughs) the system hasn't yet dealt with her quite so definitively. Anyway, a a journalist, liberal, who had been the rather unexpected uh, candidate to suddenly to appear, pushing herself forward for the election process. No great surprise, though, that she wasn't allowed. I mean, too liberal to female, probably, in that respect, and also, above all, anti-war. So, just before Christmas, 23rd of December, the Central Election Commission decided to reject her application. Now, the point is, this happens in in multiple stages. The idea is, at first point, you basically put in all sorts of documents, and that, if approved, if there's enough people supporting you, puts you through to the next stage where you have to gather a certain number of additional signatures to actually go through. Anyway, she fell at this first hurdle, and basically the claim was that there was a whole selection of mistakes found in the documents for her nominations. We had uh, a sort of a member of the Electoral Commission, Shevchenko, Evgeny Shevchenko, saying, we had the impression that they were made in haste without complying with legal norms. And then the, the Supreme Court duly backed the committee's decision. Now, as I said, that's not really surprising. What was interesting is that there are different rules for whether or not you actually are a self-nominated candidate or whether you are nominated by a candidate, sorry, by a party that already has standing. And what was interesting is she then immediately turned to the pretty moribund, I have to say, Liberal Party Yablaka asking them to back her as a candidate. And this you know, would, would have given her a, a second chance to, to get there and also a lower number of signatures that were needed. But actually, the party then turned her down. 
And they did so, I thought, in a rather snippy, even pissy way, saying that they do not nominate random citizens about whom nothing is known. Well, look, yes, Dunsova is not exactly a household name, but, you know, if they had been at all interested, they could have done their due diligence. They could have brought her in for lengthy conversation. I mean, there, there are things that could be done. This is, I think, the classic issue with any kind of opposition in Russia. It seems to be just so divided, so prone to fall into internal wranglings and more interested in scoring points off each other than any kind of sort of creating some kind of common front. And it, it can't have helped that earlier this month... Yavlinsky, the, the head of Yablaka and you know a one of the long-standing fixtures within the liberal scene going back to the 1990s, he said that he would be willing to run for president if he obtained in advance 10 million signatures from potential voters asking him to stand. Now, look, this was always going to be pretty ridiculous. He's, he stood for election in the past. The best vote he ever got in 1996 was about five and a half, just over five and a half million. So he's saying that now, if 10 million Russians are willing to actually sort of basically plead for him to stand, he would be willing to do so. I mean, look, to me, this looked like basically begging the Russian people to ask him. No wonder he didn't. I think he only got maybe about a million, if that. And following that, the, then the decision not to back Duntsova, it does sound a bit like sour grapes. Who knows? But anyway, so she is, it'll be interesting to see if she remains a figure on the opposition political scene. She talked about setting up a party and so forth, or whether or not she's had her moment of, of glory and she will disappear. On the other end of the political spectrum, we of course have Igor Strelkov Girkin. The, the sort of turbo patriot, still in prison at the moment, awaiting his um, extremism charges to, to be, um, you know, I, was, I wasn't going to say you know, adjudicated. I mean, the answer is, of course, he's almost certainly going to be found guilty. And he, too, has been blocked. And in his case, again, it was through the artful use of the system. Now, there is a whole procedure whereby someone who is in prison, in detention, can actually be nominated for the presidency. What it requires, though, is a, a no, an official notary to be present at a crucial moment in order to validate the petition to allow this person to be put to the first stage of, of the ballot. And lo and behold, what happened was, although they, they notified um, the relevant authorities that there would be this meeting and that a notary needed to be present, because it's not just anyone that you just sort of hire, Lo and behold, of course, the notary did not appear, they couldn't go any further, and so they had decided to basically not push this any further, because it's fairly clear that the system isn't going to allow it. So it's interesting that it's, you know, it's very much been handled on a, on a quite a sort of legalistic basis again. But what really struck me is actually the degree to which the kind of rhetoric that is being used about the whole election process by Girkin and his people, because there is now a whole movement, which is kind of a, once a freedom for Girkin and also a Girkin for president one. But anyway, the whole rhetoric they're using is actually strikingly similar to that which is to be found deployed by Alexei Navalny's team. What did he actually say? This is from, from Girkin directly. 
Dear friends and associates, I sincerely thank everyone who found the time and opportunity to support my nomination as a candidate for the post of President of Russia. Yes, I had no illusions about the real possibility of breaking through the echelon system of obstacles erected by the system, but I sincerely hope that in this way we will create a capable, he says cell, I mean in a way sort of, let's say civil society structure of patriots, which each of us, and not only us, are going to need in the future. Russia and its peoples unfortunately faced some difficult trials, and it depends on us on how we are united and organised. On that, the, It depends on us on how the country will get through them, and what the outcome of the approaching time of troubles will be. The one who walks will master the road. So let's do our duty. Together it'll be much easier, and it is not all in vain. I hope that in the relatively near future I'll once again be able to work shoulder to shoulder with you for the benefit of Russia. So again, what he's actually making is this point that, of course, the elections are a foregone conclusion. But on the other hand, just simply the fact of a campaign, the opportunity to organise, the opportunity to try and insert some kind of real debate into an otherwise stage-managed process, is important in and of itself, in terms of exactly creating the opportunities for generating some kind of real discussion and building some kind of a movement. You know, this is exactly the kind of language that we've had from, for example, Leonid Volkov, who's still the, the head of uh, Navalny's team in, in exile. So well, this is what's really interesting. And we can't forget the fact that actually if, if one looks at Girkin's past political pronouncements, and I'm not sure how far you know he himself originated these ideas or how far he just simply accepted them, um, having been had them developed by others. But nonetheless, you know, a similar legalism has really become very present in his branch of the Turbo Patriots. Whereas once it was all about kind of Stalinist authoritarian tactics, increasingly it has become, look, the reason why Russia is in these problems is precisely because we have an untrammeled authoritarianism. Therefore, what we need to check some balances. We need independent courts. We need genuine scrutiny of the executive. I mean, you know, ironically, both the liberals and the turbo patriots, or some of the turbo patriots, I should stress, because there are still some really, really horrible, re you know, un unreconstructed Stalinists and almost czarists amongst them. But anyway, some of the turbo patriots, like the liberals, are converging on a sense that actually what Russia needs is democracy and rule of law. So I, I did think that that was an interesting sort of byproduct. Though, of course, as I said, we'll have to wait and see quite what the system does with Girkin. So that's for people who are not being allowed. So who do we have on the ballot alongside Putin? Well, there is one liberal candidate, Boris Nadezhdin. Now, he very much comes from what we might think of as the right liberal. In other words, you know, more kind of economically liberal. Yes, to a degree socially liberal, but, you know, but more interested in, in, in liberal economics approaches. He was in the Union of Right Forces. Now it's civil initiative. And he did indeed get permission from the Central Election Commission to move into the process of, have, of being able to have collect just 100,000 signatures, it would be 300,000 if he was self-nominated, in order to participate. Now, he's an interesting candidate in the sense of, you know, he has been outspoken against the war, but also against Putin. You know, but, but he's clearly on the, um, 
shall we say, acceptable wing. He does tend to crop up a lot, for example, on Russian TV as the sort of the, the token liberal sacrifice on whom all the other pundits sort of pile on. But if you go back to June, for example, you know, he actually said on TV that we need to choose someone else, not Putin. And if we do that, then everything will be good. So, you know, again, <laughs> there is this uncertainty. How outspoken will he be if and when he actually is on the campaign trail? How much of a platform will he be allowed to have? And you know, how, you know, will he be essentially evidently house-trained? Is he just there to legitimate the process? I think the answer to that is yes. But you might say, is the legitimation going to be limited to just letting him be on the ballot, but then essentially muzzling him, not allowing him to really be able to make any kind of great statements to the, the Russian public on television or whatever? Or will he be allowed that platform and actually end up providing a very watered-down, clearly sort of, again, um, choreographed version of, of his message? The key thing is this. Look, he is not particularly well-known. And mm, I would say it's true to say that opinions vary within the liberal camp as to how far they can be they can trust him. So it's not that I think there's going to be some big groundswell in which all the various anti-Putin forces on the liberal side decide, you know, let's put aside our differences and back Nadezhdin. In that sense, I think he's a fairly smart choice of the token liberal candidate there to provide that sense that there is a genuine spread of opinions and these are real elections. Speaking of spread of opinions, though, we, we also have on the ballot Leonid Slutsky, a um, 55-year-old stripling now in charge of Zhirinovsky's Liberal Democrat Party. And he's very much kind of the, the continuity Zhirinovsky candidate without the charisma. He's the Dean of the International Relations Department at Moscow State University of Economics, Information and Statistics. So not MGU, not the Moscow State University, but a Moscow State University. And look, he has look, regularly said suitably inflammatory and, and bizarre things. To be honest, he's probably better known for various scandals that surround him. Uh, corruption ones, uh, I mean... This is, again, according to Navalny's team and their, frankly, usually pretty well-informed investigations that, you know, just despite not having apparently one would have thought the assets to support it, he doesn't only have land and a house and three apartments, but, you know, a variety of cars, including two Bentleys, a Bentley Continental Flying Spur and a Bentia, Bentayga. No idea what they look like. And a Mercedes Maybach S500 limousine, which... And this is, I think, a fascinating little insight between June 2017 and March 2018. So in other words, in less than a year, that particular car violated traffic rules 825 times, including driving on the oncoming lane, for God's sake. And the fines that were sort of accrued as a result amounted to 1.4 million rubles, which would actually be, assuming he lives on his official income alone, almost half his official income. Now, you know, it may well be that he is, in fact, bankrupting himself to pay off traffic fines. A cynic would suggest that actually he clearly has enough money that, you know, a mere 1.4 million rubles is hardly worth cramping his style. 
Beyond that, the other sort of main scandal for which he was known was back in 2018, when there was, I mean, bizarrely, it, it was a sexual scandal in which it's a variety of women journalists primarily talked about Slutsky having, you know, committed all kinds of offences against them. And look, that shouldn't surprise us that he behaves that way. Unfortunately, that kind of behaviour is still sadly too present within Russian officialdom management and indeed the state Duma. What was really surprising was actually that it, actually, that it became such a big public deal, widely covered in the Russian press, and actually led to elements of the media boycotting Slutsky and saying they were not willing anymore to report what he said and such like. So in some ways that was a milestone, but I don't think it's necessarily the milestone you expect. Now, Slutsky's role, just like Zhirinovsky's role, is to be on the ballot, again, to create this illusion of a spread of opinions, but also to make Putin look moderate and statesmanlike. The problem is this. I mean, Zhirinovsky, Zhirik, was essentially a theatrical creature. He basically said stuff just for, for shock value, and he would come up with not just all kinds of, of extreme, bizarre notions. I'm looking forward to the point when you know, Russian soldiers will be washing their boots in the channel and so forth. But beyond that, he also knew how to deliver them effectively. Slutsky, he can come up with all kinds of unpleasant and toxic narratives, but he really doesn't have the same kind of charisma. So, you know, again, in some ways what we're seeing is, is quite a low-key theme emerging in this campaign. And to continue that particular element, the other candidate is the communist candidate, inevitably. In this case, it's Nikolai Kharitonov, who's a 75-year-old agronomist, I suppose, to, to bring a bit of youth compared with the 79-year-old Gennady Zyuganov, the leader of the party. Now, he, he's already been a nominee before, back in uh, 2004, I think. Yeah, four. Um, and that time, he frankly un underwhelmed. I mean, he did okay in the rope, but that was basically not because he elevated the communist vote, but because the Communist Party's traditional support base elevated Karitonovs, quite frankly. Again, he lacks name recognition, and more to the point, he certainly also lacks conviction as well as charisma, I would say. Again, this is, this is weird. This is a man who can, again, say all kinds of horrible things. And, you know, he, for example, way back when, back in, in his election campaign, he advocated something that later happened, the restoration of the statue of Felix Zizinski, Iron Felix, the bloody-handed first chief of the Bolshevik secret police force. He advocated the return of the statue into Lubyanka Square. Now, I said, that's happened. But the point is, you know, going back and, and, and looking at, at some of his early statements, like Slutsky, he is able to say extreme things, but in so tedious a manner that they hardly come across as such. And what's more, he has already said, after his nomination for the candidacy, that he would not be criticising Putin. I mean, for God's sake, why don't you just simply call yourself a doormat and just lie prone outside the Kremlin gates waiting for the current president to wipe his feet on you? I, I do wonder if this kind of approach might backfire. If actually having candidates who, with the exception of Nadezhdin, so patently don't want to win, 
so patently actually are, are just be going through the motions so that Putin can claim a contested victory. Now, will there be any kind of backlash, particularly within the communists, with whom who, there is still some degree of fight, at least at, at the lower levels and the regional local structures, and some of whom are like the more radical Red Front advocates, willing to, for example, see that a candidate like Girkin could have been worth supporting, not because they think that he is at all attuned to the values of the left, but just simply in order to bring down the Putin regime. You know, I, I do wonder how, how these people must feel about having Kharitonov act as their notional champion. So anyway, that is really how the, the election is, is, is beginning to kind of shape up. And as, as I said in a previous podcast, this is really going to be the there is no alternative election. That rather than trying to make it out that there's going to be a fake but vigorous battle of ideologies and programs from which Putin will emerge triumphant, instead there will be that point of there's not even really worth having the conversation because it is so clear that Putin is the only candidate and that his policies are the only way forward for Russia. So in this respect, having essentially tedious opposition figures go through the motions of some kind of election fits that. It fits how the political technologists have decided to run this election in what is inevitably a, a difficult time for the regime. Whether it fits with the Russian people, and as I said, whether actually it has the desired effect of legitimating Putin's regime, or actually delegitimates the whole process, well, that we'll have to wait and see. And on that point, let's have a quick break and then come back to the war. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counterterrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. So, turning to the war, on one level, look, inevitably at this time of year, things do slow down somewhat, just simply because of the, the physical environment in which people are operating. But of course, it's not like the, the war ends. We, we still have the fighting in Avdiivka. We've had the Russian claims of having taken another little town, which really is no, long, no more than just a, a field of rubble now. And in particular, we had the Ukrainian Storm Shadow missile attack, which sunk the Russian landing ship Novocherkask in the port and harbour, at least, at Feodosia. Now, it's worth dwelling on this because there's an, there's an interesting narrative emerging about the importance of the war in the Black Sea, or to put it another way, the war against the Black Sea fleet, which I think in some ways misses the point. Look, the Russians clearly have taken some serious hits in the Black Sea. The days when they had absolute dominance, or pretty much absolute dominance, are clearly gone. The Ukrainians are once again able to export grain through maritime channels. And although there's no question about them being able to control the Black Sea, because 
frankly, Russia can still exclude Ukrainian ships to a degree by air and missile and such like attack. You know, nonetheless, the Black Sea Fleet has taken some serious hits and to a large degree is now, I wouldn't say confined to, but, uh, you know, unless it wants to run some real risks, it is having to operate in the eastern part of, the, of, of that sea. And in some ways, I think that uh, talking this up is a way of, frankly, trying to compensate for the essential lack of success of the Ukrainian counteroffensive in this across this year. Because after all, this is not a war that is going to be fought and won at sea. Most wars are not, but certainly not this. This is basically a land war in which actually the role of the Black Sea Fleet has been pretty limited, more limited again than we might have expected. So you know, there is a degree in which, fine, there are successes against it. They will be talked up because it suits the, the, the Ukrainian and the Western narrative. But on the other hand, I mean, I think what is really important is precisely the degree to which the Ukrainians are demonstrating more and more directly their capacity to strike at ships and land-based facilities on Crimean soil and in Crimean waters. Because the point they're doing is making it clear that Crimea can no longer be regarded as a Russian bastion. It is instead increasingly going to be a Russian vulnerability. That Yes, there are lots of forces there. There are everything from sort of ground-based air defences and air bases all the way through to, to garrisons and, and units. And it's not that Ukraine is going to be coming for them directly anytime soon. They, they won't be able to. And frankly, there's also a difficult political decision to be made because I can't help feeling that Although there's a lot of talk of Putin's red lines, most of his red lines have turned out to be faint, translucent and pink. But on the other hand, the thought of actually losing Crimea to a direct Ukrainian assault, I do suspect that Putin would regard that as politically existential for him. And if anything's going to force him to, to find some potentially self-destructive ways of escalating, it would be that. And I think that's, that's understood, if not in Kyiv, at least elsewhere in the West. And so the strategy is rather to strangle Crimea instead, is to try and you know cut off the, the land bridge routes, which was you know one of the key objectives of the counteroffensive, and it will again in the future be. But also once you've done that, you can bring down the Kerch Bridge, you can try and interdict any sea or air resupply to Crimea, and you know, again in effect bring it under siege which will, A, force Putin to make some tough decisions about whether he basically turns all efforts to try to break that, and also will pose some interesting challenges for the people in Crimea. You know, if all of a sudden you can't get food, and you can't be resupplied, and you can't be reinforced, well, never mind how the civilians may feel, but even the, the, the defenders, you know, are they really going to be willing to fight to the last bullet and the last ration pack? Who knows? But this is a long-term strategy, but as I said, in this respect, I think being able to hit ships like the Novocherkask, particularly because as a, I mean, a landing ship, it can be used as a military supply vessel if need be, you know, actually has value in terms of actually sinking that specific ship and embarrassing Putin and demonstrating the capacity of the Ukrainian forces, but also is part of this slow closing of a fist around Crimea. So it does matter. Of course, we're not entirely sure yet, not least because I think Kiev isn't entirely sure yet, what its strategy is going to be over the coming year. 
And to a degree, that is, I think, the importance behind the quite well-reported political spats between President Zelensky and General Zaluzhny, the head of the Ukrainian armed forces. In that, yes, in part, this is driven by, apparently, the concerns from Zelensky's chief of staff and General Hatchetman Yermak that Zaluzhny could represent some kind of political threat. And it's interesting the degree to which the Russians are playing it up. I mean, for example, there was a recent um, interview in which Zaluzhny does sort of tackle a lot of these sort of difficult issues at the moment. And the pretty uh, nationalistic uh, Russian newspaper Komsomolskaya Pravda reported this under the headline, Zaluzhny struck five blows at Zelensky. The president of Ukraine is furious. His plan failed. The commander-in-chief launched a counterattack on the president. And while the lords are sorting things out, Kievans began to be caught en masse at checkpoints in the city, set up for exercises, quote-unquote. Which is actually quite elegantly toxic, in that it just does manage to sort of bring together and twist a whole variety of different issues, including the fact that clearly there is a whole concern about the need for additional military manpower in Ukraine, and suggestions that, for example, the minimum age for calling up reservists, mobilising reservists, should be brought down by a couple of years, and even talk that Ukrainian menfolk who are abroad ought to be being basically sort of rounded up and sent back so that they can go and fight. The Estonians have already at least signalled a certain willingness to do this. But the point is, the big dilemma for Ukraine in the coming year is essentially whether or not this is a year of building or a year of fighting. I mean, either way, they will be fighting. But, you know, do the Ukrainians essentially sort of concentrate on holding the line? And we're already seeing some building of fortifications along the current front line with the idea that they spend a whole year preparing and then 2025 is the sort of hopefully the crucial year in which they're actually able to make enough movement on the battlefield that it forces the Russians into negotiations, if not capitulation. Or instead, do they, as soon as they are able, launch further counteroffensives? Now, militarily, it looks like the logic is very much behind building. But on the other hand, there are also political factors at work. You know, can the Ukrainians continue to sustain the uh, momentum behind the war effort if there's no good news? Because in- almost inevitably, a sort of a building strategy implies that you may be able to deny the enemy any particular advances. And it does look as if over the past year, actually, the Russians took more ground than they lost. Um, I mean, not by much, not in a way that is at all significant, but certainly that one cannot assume that they will be able to claim great successes against the Russians. Who knows? And likewise, will the continued support from the outside world be, be maintained without some kind of a good news? Again, things like the Novichokask sinking, you know, that, that's also politically important as something that you can tell the West and say, look, this is what your, your weapons and your support are, are providing. So, you know, again, that, that's going to be an interesting one that plays out because actually, when it comes down to it, it's all very well the military logic suggesting one thing. There are also political logics all of their own, some of which are valid, some of which are not. 
And it also plays this whole issue of whether or not there's any chance of talks. We've seen some, some interesting uh, news articles of late suggesting that sort of Putin is, through intermediaries and back channels, suggesting that some kind of a ceasefire. Now, I don't honestly think that they're going to come to anything, not least because 2024 is going to be important for the Russians as well. I think that really, from the Russians' point of view, it represents their best chance of making some kind of serious advances, and therefore, with that, the promise that they could perhaps impose some kind of a deal on Ukraine. This is the year in which they're probably going to have the manpower advantage. This is certainly the year in which they're going to have the ammunition advantage. And it's a year that basically they, they could afford to pay for this war. I mean, finance minister um, you know, actually explicitly came out and said, look, there's no problem with covering this. The interesting thing was he was very, very explicit in saying no problem in covering the cost of the year of the war in the coming year. What's unsaid is precisely that actually those costs might well become much more problematic if it rolls into 2025. So is, is Putin serious about a ceasefire? Well, it may well be that he is, if by ceasefire we mean a period of, of consolidation so that he can relaunch an attack. I don't think we're yet at the point where a ceasefire could become something permanent or semi-permanent. Whether or not this war does end up with some kind of unacknowledged but in practice you know, fixed division of the country, as we've seen in Korea, well, I mean, we have to recognise that that is a, a potential possibility, but we're nowhere near that stage yet. Instead, I think that both sides really are not yet determined as to quite what 2024 is going to mean for them militarily. And at the moment, it is still the military dimensions of things which actually are going to determine everything else. Finally, let me turn to this interview that I mentioned. It's in Resiska Gazeta, so in other words, the sort of official government newspaper of record. And it ran on Wednesday, December the 27th. And I'll leave a, a link in the programme notes to it. And it's a very, very wide-ranging one. I mean, again... Russian newspapers tend to give people like Karaganov the scope, really, to say anything they want at as much length as they want. And in this case, it's an interview under the headline, you know, where does the river flow in 2024? Sergei Karaganov, Russia has completed its European journey. And I want to sort of bring up some, some chunky quotes from this because I think it does very much illustrate a particular current stream of opinion within, again, the more hawkish Russian elite, but particularly that's then sort of cranked up to 11 in terms of its sheer scale of, of extremism. And look, Karaganov is clearly basically trying to say that you know, Russia is a European country, but is in some ways even more European than the Europeans these days, and that it's, it's creating some whole new civilization. And of course, that the war is all our fault. So, Here's a couple of quotes. The current Western elites cannot cope with the avalanche of problems that are growing in their societies. This includes a shrinking middle class and growing inequality. Almost all of their initiatives fail. The European Union is slowly and surely, as everyone is well aware, moving towards disintegration. 
This is why European elites have been demonstrating hostility towards Russia for about 15 years. And he continues, The German and European elites are experiencing an inferiority complex in a monstrous situation for them, when Europe is being overtaken by everyone. I mean, look, one, one can argue that, that perspective. Um, but again, the point he's making is that the European Union in particular, and it's, in, and it's interesting that he's stressing it's the European Union in this case that are the bad guys, not the Americans, which is the usual kind of Kremlin push narrative that the EU really is dragged along by those imperialistic cowboys in, in DC. Now, in this case, it's actually he's very much putting the focus on, on Europe. And he said you know, the threat is that the old world has lost its fear of armed conflicts, and this is very dangerous. Now, on the one hand, of course, we, you know, we, we Russians shouldn't worry because Russia is waging a struggle and is waging it successfully. We are acting confidently enough to sober up these Western elites so that, in their despair over their failures, they would not unleash another world conflict. We must not forget that these same European elites started two world wars in one generation in the last century. Well, let's just put aside one teeny little factor is that Russia did not have an insignificant role in both of these world wars, whether we're talking about the way in which actually the Russian mobilization of its forces pushed Germany into feeling it had to strike first in the First World War, or indeed the role of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in sort of paving the way to the Second World War. No, 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 That's, that, that would be churlish. No, so basically, again, it, it's essentially these frightened European elites are desperate to try and regain some kind of control over what's going on, and also desperate to find some kind of enemy figure which allows a, a re-cohering of their collapsing and decaying societies, and Russia represents that role. However, unluckily for them, Russia is proving so determined and diligent in pushing back against it that, of course, they are now being sort of kept aware. So in this respect, Russia is the force for world peace. God bless them. But it's not just world peace. It's actually also about saving Europe. So the, the um, not exactly hardball question that's asked by the interviewer, Yevgeny Shestakov. Are you talking about the spiritual and political defeat of Europe as a fait accompli? And Karaganov replies, yes, and it's terrifying. We're still part of European culture, but I hope that through a series of crises in Europe, in about 20 years, relatively speaking, healthy forces will prevail, and she will wake up from her failure, including the moral one. And what does he mean by the sort of moral one? Well, he actually says that not only it's, is the West the one that's lowering an iron curtain these days, which actually one has to note is true. You know, if one thinks about the iron curtain in, the, the, shall I say, the first Cold War, that was raised by the Soviets to stop their people from getting out into the West and to stop Western ideas from getting in. Now, it does have to be said that it is, in fact, the West that is lowering an iron curtain to stop Russians from being able to flee their country, and in some ways also to, again, prevent Russian ideas from, from coming into the West, which is, a, I regard, actually, as a rather depressing example of our failure to learn, but also our timorousness, our lack of self-confidence. But that's, that's a whole other matter.
But basically, what what is going on? Well, exactly that. Essentially, that the West is lowering the Iron Curtain because it is afraid, as far as Karaganov is concerned, of the degree to which Russia represents all that is good about European culture, and in that respect, Russia's very culture is a rebuke to the degenerate West. He goes on. We will preserve European culture within ourselves, which, it seems, Europe is trying to abandon. But I hope that she will not completely give up on herself. After all, Europe is not only abolishing Russian culture, it is abolishing its own. It's cancelling a culture based largely on love and Christian values. I think, I'm, I'm sure the Ukrainians would, 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 would see Russia as the uh, acme of love and Christian values. Europe cancels her own history, destroys her monuments. We will not reject our European roots. At a time when, in, in Karaganov's view, Europe is heading towards inevitable fascization. In other words, becoming fascistic. It's, it's not a word I recognise, but there you go. So, in this respect, obviously, the special military operation, the war, is about holding back the degeneracy holding back attempts to undermine Russia. But more than that, and again, this for me is, I would suggest, the most chilling bit of Karaganov's interview. The military operation we are conducting in Ukraine is aimed, among other things, at preparing the country for life in a future very dangerous world. We are purifying our elite, driving out corrupt pro-Western elements from it. We're reviving our economy, we're reviving our military strength. We are reviving the spirit of Russia. Now, and I'll come to the end how far we can actually take this at face value. But again, this, this takes things even further than Putin himself has. This notion that the, the quote-unquote special military operation is not just aimed at carrying out particular sort of effects, particular you know, bringing about particular political goals. It is also about redefining Russia as this kind of war-fighting patriot mobilization state. I mean, that we are purifying our elite. I mean, that, that is quite horrific and, and frankly does, does sound Stalinist. And, he, you know, later on he does sort of try to actually define what kind of, of, of values this, this new, purified, uncorrupt nation would have. We also need to realise that we don't need the West now. We took everything that was useful from this wonderful European journey that Peter the Great began. And now we need to return to ourselves, to the origins of Russian greatness. This, of course, is the development of Siberia. It's new development, which means reaching new horizons. We must remember that we are not so much a European as a Eurasian country. I never tire of reminding you that Alexander Nevsky travelled for a year and a half, first through Central Asia and then through southern Siberia, on the way to Karakorum, the capital of the Mongol Empire. In fact, he was the first Russian Siberian. Well, look, let me unpick a few elements there. First of all, this, this idea that we've taken from the West everything that we need. I mean, that's really interesting, you know, I mean, because essentially it does, again, suggest some kind of severing of the ties. The stress on, on being a Eurasian country, again, something that we see from all kinds of 
you know, nationalist, isolationist types, as well as nationalist, expansionist types, you know, people like Alexander Dugin and the like. And what does Eurasian mean? Well, I don't think he quite thought through his example. He talks about Alexander Nevsky traveling all the way to Karakorum, capital of the Mongol Empire, which indeed he did do. Why did he do that? He did that precisely because he had to petition the Mongol Great Khan for the right to continue to be a prince of the Rus. I mean, this was, this was part of the, the sort of formal structures of, of subjugation, that you know, the Mongols were conquerors, not administrators. Having taken the Russian lands, they didn't then want to be running it. They, they were not like the Romans. They didn't want to bring in their gods and their roads and all that sort of thing. No, that, that, that was for other people. They, they ruled through local princes. However, those local princes had to know their place. They had to carry out the census, collect the taxes, send all the silver and tribute back. But also, they had to go and formally subjugate themselves to demonstrate that they were indeed nothing more than vassals of the Golden Horde. And most of the time, actually, it wasn't Karakorum, but much closer, Sarai, that they went to. But this was not Nevsky, an explorer, Nevsky, a diplomat, Nevsky, the, the Russian Siberian. This was Nevsky, the quizzling opportunist, realizing that he had to go and, and speak to his masters in order to be allowed to continue to be a prince of the Rus. And so this is it, actually, whether he... he he was aware of this or not, the example that Garaganov is making actually stresses that a Eurasian Russia would actually be a vassal of the East. Not the Mongols these days, but of course the Chinese. So where do we go from here? Well, Karaganov says it's pointless to negotiate with the current Western elites. In my publications, I call on the Western oligarchy to replace those elites since they're dangerous to themselves, and I hope that such a change will begin sooner or later, even though he himself accepts that it'll probably take a long time. Today in the world, it's every man for himself. This is a magnificent, multipolar, multicolored world. We need to find ourselves, understand who we are. Great Eurasian power, northern Eurasia, liberator of peoples, guarantor of peace and the military political core of the world majority. This is our destined role. I mean, this is all very stirring stuff. It's also quite worrying stuff, as I say, if one takes it at face value. Look, Karaganov was always a hawk. There's no way around it. On the other hand, he was the kind of hawk who knew how to, to play his ideas to various audiences, could sometimes deliver deeply troubling messages, but with a bit of a twinkle or a sort of a cynical um, angle, which meant that he continued to be, for quite a long time, a welcome interlocutor in, in the West as well. Um, but but this, is, this is Karaganov. Actually, maybe come to think of it, may, maybe, maybe it's, it's Karaganov on shrooms. So perhaps magic mushrooms do appear in this episode. You know, it, it certainly is, is, is Karaganov almost caricaturing himself. Um, what could we read into this? Because obviously there's a limit to actually how far we should regard this as a serious programmatic vision. First of all, I think that, you know, if, if we pull out the key themes, again, it's that this is some kind of civilizational struggle for Russia. 
It's a struggle that Russia is ultimately winning because of the purity of its morals. It reflects, frankly, the degeneracy and hostility of a West, and in this case that means Europe rather than America. So in other words, again, Russia is the defender, which has always been one of, sort of Putin's key lines. From this conflict, a new Russia is emerging, one that, that is more pure, that is more dedicated, that is more aware of itself, that is not trying desperately to ape the West, but instead is finding out what Russianness means, and that essentially what he calls the world majority, which in other words basically means the global South, is becoming won over by this. Now, you know, much of this is absolute nonsense. But it does, I think, represent the genuine feverish intellectual environment in some quarters. Now, I really would stress this. Karaganov is reflecting a, a small minority of, of Russian opinion, but an extremely important and influential one. People like Karaganov are exactly the kind of people who precisely do the briefings for parliamentarians and for the Security Council Secretariat. These are the kind of people who also have a crucial role in selecting and grooming the next generation of both quote-unquote thought leaders, I hate that term, um, but nonetheless, the, you know, the, again, the, the, the lecturers and the professors, the training people at military academies and such like, you know, so many of them will have gone through the orbits of people like Karaganov. So, you know, we should appreciate that, that there is an, an element in which, you know, although I would love to be able to write this off purely as performative propaganda, you know, it, it is becoming encoded in a certain body of Russian thinking. But it also represents a process of, shall we call it, competitive extremism. You know, someone like Karaganov, who has been for a long time one of the sort of key figures within Russian strategic IR thinking, is finding himself at risk of being outflanked of, uh, by other people who will be able to express politically convenient, barking-mad narratives with greater conviction or greater extremism. And so he has had to raise his own game. Has he actually changed his thinking? I don't know honestly. But on the other hand, his rhetoric absolutely has. I suspect that this is not entirely or even largely genuine. I suspect that this is actually a smart political operator who understands the current environment, understands that he can't allow other people to basically sort of seem to, you know, take his position as one of the great um, intellectual powerhouses of Russian strategic thinking and therefore is having to, to shore up his own position. And if the political environment changed dramatically, I suspect that his, his views would also change quite, quite strikingly. Again, you know, he is never going to be a little white dove flapping his way to the sounds of Kumbaya. No, he's always going to be something of a hawk. But of course, how far you, know, you, you can reinvent yourself as a, shall I say, more kind of rational hawk of the trust but verify, you know, of course we can't trust the West, but we have to deal with them for the sake of world peace, blah, 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 all the way through to this kind of, we can't trust the West. The only way we, we can actually survive this moment is by being tough, determined, disciplined and mobilized and face them down because they're in the decline.
So, you know, for all these reasons, you know, I, I think that what Karaganov is, is channeling is precisely the kind of mood around the Kremlin, around the Security Council Secretariat, and the constant desire to come up with yet more compelling narratives. But the very fact that it is escalatory demonstrates the fact that it is also hollow. In other words, it is not that there is one basic intellectual approach that has been adopted and that therefore different people are just simply finding alternative ways of articulating it. It is clearly that, that there are still desperately struggling to find something that will satisfy Putin and those around him, that will also satisfy the practical needs of the moment, in other words, justifying current policy, and which also, and this is the most crucial and problematic issue for them, be something that inspires the Russian people. Someone like Karaganov is able to do the first two, but not the third. No one has yet really managed to find a genuine way of, of winning the Russian people over to this, this new creed of a kind of Eurasian Sparta. And so long as that happens, to loop this back to the political question, which I covered in the first half of this podcast, you know, there will be real problems. There, it is very hard to legitimize your regime when you can't provide physical goodies, but nor can you f provide some kind of narrative that most Russians think, yes, I like that, I'm willing to accept costs in order to see that particular perspective advanced. So this is why 2024 is going to be yet another interesting year. We have uncertainty on the battlefield. No clear sense that either side will actually be able to really sort of capitalize on the opportunities their way. Uncertainty precisely about what the political strategy is going to be in conjunction with the military one. We have elections where the outcome is not uncertain at all, but the process is beginning to look a little bit potentially interesting and a lot more interesting than the Kremlin would like it to be. We have this whole question of whether or not the Kremlin can find ways of reconnecting itself to the Russian people. All of this is going to give us something to watch. Anyway, as I said, this is the last podcast of the year, though my, my patrons will continue to get their 12 days of shadowy Christmas um, bonuses into early January. I basically want to thank everyone who listens for your implied support. It's a strange thing about a podcast. You kind of you throw it out there into the ether. And you don't really know, you know, I mean, except when people come along and say, oh, I listen to your podcast and so forth. But you don't really know who is listening to it, whether they're listening with, with deep approval and appreciation or, or hate listening, just wanting to know what, what this ghastly person thinks. But nonetheless, thank you very much for listening. Thank you often for engaging. And particularly, I do need to thank my patrons who allow me to basically spend the time. Again, this is the, the tyranny of being self-employed. You more or less have to be able to sort of economically justify the time you spend on things. Um, anyway, but allow me to, to, to maintain this particular podcast. Thank you all. And may I wish for us all a much more peaceful 2024. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. 
Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.